If you would uh, turn your Bible to Revelation chapter 2. We ask this morning that the Lord's beauty would rest upon each one of us so that our neighbors, our family, and our friends would see Jesus and Jesus alone. This morning we're going to study verses 8 through 11 concerning the words of Christ to the church at Smyrna. As is our normative practice, we will seek the Holy Spirit in prayer before reading the text aloud and then dividing and dissecting the passage for understanding and application. I have listed a pile of uh, scripture references for this morning. So as you can see, we are going to study only three verses, but we'll be here all day. So prepare yourselves uh, as we uh, dive into the word. So let us pray together this morning. And gracious Father in heaven, we trust in your goodness that you will withhold no good gift from us, Lord. We ask for the gift of your Holy Spirit this morning to help us that you would illuminate your word so that we might understand your plain meaning. We ask that grace be added to us, that we might be inflamed in the heart that we would have passions for the things that you are passionate about. Extend to us your favor in moving in us to do and to be what the Spirit says that the churches uh, need to be, and all of that for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So I pose a question to us this morning, and that is, Are you living for the dot, or are you living for the line? The dot is our temporary position in the line of eternity. And what are you living for? In Psalm 90, it says, As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years, yet the pride is but labor and sorrow. For soon it is gone, and we will fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. 70 to 80 years are are but a, a dot. They're but a vapor, a mist in the line of eternity. If we fail to live our days considering the line, we will squander our days on the dot. The the only days that will amount to anything worthy in the line of eternity will be those days that we lived faithfully while we were here in the dot. In Christ Jesus, the faithful have received an eternal kingdom. And this eternal kingdom is lived in the temporal dot. And that this time in this temporal dot is marked by trouble. And so in the introduction of the book of Revelation, John describes himself as our partner, a fellow partaker in kingdom and in tribulation and in perseverance that are in Christ Jesus. The letters to the churches, remember, come with a blessing for the reader that the speaker and the hearer of these things, uh, which will soon come to pass and which will come upon us suddenly, these things are to be heeded. As we think about Romans chapter 2, 13, excuse me. Let us look at Romans chapter 13 real quick. Romans chapter 13. 
verse 11. Do this, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. You see, we live in this tension between the already and the not yet. Already the kingdom of Christ is increasing, pointing us to the consummation of it. Already we are in a world of increasing tribulation, awaiting the eradication of it. We got both things going at the same time, but today is the day that we have to serve the Lord. We have no other day to serve the Lord except for the day that He has given us, and that is today. He will return, and He will come in a day and on an hour uh, when we do not expect it. Today, the Christian and the church live by faith in the perseverance that is in Christ Jesus. So I want to give us, again, maybe as a reminder, I don't know if I did this before, but I want to do this today, a reminder of how we are going to read and understand these letters um, and understand the whole book, really, is that there is a, a line, which is uh, what Bible scholars call the melodic line. There's a line of Scripture, that every, that, uh, a line that everything in the Scriptures connects every other part of it to. And so, the melodic line of the book of Revelation, I have just uh, put in this way. The return of Christ is near. Christ followers model Christ's ironic victory in their lives. While enduring through tribulation, Christians reign in the invisible kingdom of the Messiah. The sovereign God and Christ display their glory and judgment and redemption, which motivates Christ's followers to worship God according to his attributes through obedience to his word. So now, as you are able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's infallible, inerrant word from Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer, Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, so that you will be tested, and you have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. This is God's Word. Y'all may be seated. So as we think about what's going on in this passage, the church at Smyrna was opposed and persecuted by Jewish leaders. They were under severe economic hardship. Jews and Gentiles alike had disdain for the Christian church. The Roman government would soon oppose them as well because of the slanderous testimony of the Jewish leadership. Until the latter part of the, of the first century, Christianity enjoyed a degree of protection under the umbrella of Judaism. The Romans then tolerated them. The Jews were not forced to worship uh, Caesar as a god, but they were allowed to offer sacrifices in honor of emperors as rulers, but not as gods. But after Nero, the persecution intensified, and so uh, Christianity came under suspicion. New religions were not allowed 
or acceptable within the Roman um, kingdoms. So Jews who had, they had no qualms about semi-revering other deities along with their Old Testament God. They were often very willing to make the Roman authorities aware that Christians were not Jews. And therefore there was this new thing that was unacceptable. Jews would have viewed Christianity as a, a religion that distorted the Jewish law and that, that Christians were offering a perversely easy way of salvation. They also considered Christian worship of a crucified criminal as the divine Messiah. They would have viewed that as blasphemy. The Jewish leadership took a literal interpretation of Deuteronomy 21. I want to read uh, 21 uh, verses uh, 22 and 23. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, he is to be put to death and you hang him on a tree. His corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. It's cursed of God. This is, this is the Jewish take on this, this new religion that is formed around Christ, is that he surely is accursed of God. He's a criminal. He hung on a tree. This kind of worship is unacceptable to the Jews. So, of course, they would easily want to and desire to throw them under the bus to give them over to the Roman authorities. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Paul explains that the Christian view of this man who was cursed and, and hung on a tree means that we are redeemed in him because the curse was not for him. The curse, it was, it was him taking on the curse for us. In Galatians 3.13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. It is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. See, the goodness of God cursed Jesus for what we deserved. According to Tacticus, the history of Smyrna reveals that it had a particular loyalty to Rome, especially that it had built more than one temple in honor of Roman religion. Religious patriotism meant that there was little patience with Christians refusing to worship the deity of the emperor. The imperial religious cult permeated virtually every aspect of the city and often village life in Asia Minor. See, so that if individuals in that community uh, aspired to economic prosperity and, and those kind of things and greater social standing, they could only do so if they would participate in some degree to the Roman cult. So uh, before we jump in, having that, have that in mind as to what Jesus says to them. Uh, there's a pattern that we saw in the last letter, and we're going to see in each letter. And the pattern of the letters goes something like this. Uh, the nature and, of, and character of Christ is revealed first. Then the circumstances of the particular church are addressed. Then there's a commendation or a condemnation or both of those things for the church. There's then an admonition to repent 
or to remain faithful. And then finally, there comes a promise to those who overcome, that is, those who remain faithful in the midst of trial and troubles and those kinds of things. So that's kind of how the letters are, are shaped, as it were. So keep in mind that these believers in Smyrna uh, had not capitulated to the culture. They had not brought the culture into the church. They had uh, stood strong in faith, but they were suffering because of it. They were suffering economic hardship. They were suffering at the hands of their brother Jews who were turning them over to uh, and about to turn them over to religious uh, or to uh, Roman authorities, right? So this is, this is the state of the church here at this time. Verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life. So as the letter to this uh, Smyrnian church opens up, the revelation and the nature and character of Christ gives us a hint to the nature and character that Christ is going to command of his church. We should note that in each letter, there's, there's this revealing of who Christ is. And that revelation of who he is, is is directly related to what he calls the church to be and to do. And some of his character then then also shows them what it what they must have in them uh, to overcome these difficult circumstances that they're in. So uh, this is the idea that, that they will be overcome tribulation that they uh, are facing and that they are going to face in increasing measure. You might uh, remember from chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, this is sort of an overview of all the letters and all the character of Christ that he is going to unfold separately and individually and, and Different pieces of this are going to apply to different churches based on their circumstances. Verse 17 and 18 says this, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. To each church, Jesus delivers to them what part of his nature and character they can trust in and be conformed to uh, so that in him they will overcome these difficult circumstances. So he reveals to the church at Smyrna that he is the first and the last. The Smyrnian church and the church at Spring Hill can be encouraged that Jesus went first. I want us to get this. He is the first and the last. Jesus went first. Of all the things that we go through and that we are going through today that you're sitting here going through, we can trust this. Jesus went first. Jesus went before us. He went first. We can take courage in that, in whatever trials we face. Turn with me to John chapter 15. I know you're going to get, you're going to get through your whole Bible this morning. John chapter 15. Think about this. Jesus went first. Jesus has always gone first. John chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. We can trust that Jesus went first. It's an encouragement to us. He went, who went first, he says, is also last. He suffered under the hatred of the world. 
but he overcame by faith and obedience to the will of the Father. In chapter 16 and verse 33, these things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Jesus calls us to be overcomers, but he went first. He overcame. He overcame before us. He went first. He says, take courage and have peace within yourself. The one who was dead has come to life. He conquered death. It could not hold him. Take courage. He has made peace with God for you. He who is alive is your life. He who is alive is your life. Know this, that Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. He is the first and he is the last. He has made peace with God. He knows the hatred of the world experientially. He died at the hands of lawless men. He knows the transgressions that you and I have committed. In love, he died and he released you and I from our sins. He knows the consequences of our sins. He knows what they deserved. But you know, the scripture says that he knew no sin, became sin for us. He knows the consequences of our sin, but he doesn't know it experientially. He was pure and perfect. There's a kind of knowledge that is knowledge by experience, right? And in one sense, Jesus has the experience of hatred from the world towards him, just like we do. But in another sense, I'm thankful that he doesn't know experientially the what sin is in that he never committed any. He never experienced it, but he knows the consequences of it. He knows what it costs. He knows the transgressions that you and I have committed. But experientially, he who died and is alive is pure, and he lives to ever lives to make intercession for us. There's no need to fear. He who died and rose again is coming soon. The time is near, and he knows. He knows our condition. Verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And that blaspheme by those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. He knows our temporal situation, and he knows our spiritual condition. He knows this. This is a quote from J.C. Ryle. True Christianity will cost a man the favor of the world. He must be content to be thought ill of by man if he wants to please God. He must uh, consider it no strange thing to be mocked, to be ridiculed, to be slandered, to be cursed, persecuted, and to even be hated. He must know this. And Jesus knows that condition of man. He experienced that condition, the hatred of the world towards him. He knows both our temporal earthly circumstances and he knows the condition of our spirit. He knows the pressure that the Smyrnian church was under. 
He knows that they were pressured under uh, to, to submit to and to acquiesce to the imperial cult of the Romans. He knows that they had to make an economic sacrifice if they were to stand firm in their faith. He knows their trouble. He knows their poverty. He knows their physical, personal condition. I take great comfort in that truth, that he knows my condition. And when you think, well, you know, God's never changed my condition. I'm still in the same condition I was in. Yeah, maybe temporarily. But he also knows this, and he knows this about them. You are rich. You are rich in faith. You have the treasure of Christ. You might be uh, suffering trouble in this temporal world, but eternally you have the gift of Christ Jesus. You must remember that he died for you and he freed you from your sin. You have been set free. Who are the richest people on the earth except those who have been set free from the bondage of sin? Those are the freest people and on the earth. Those are the richest people on the earth. Those who have been set free from the bondage of sin. This is what, this is what Jesus is declaring of this church in Smyrna. I know the condition uh, of your circumstances. I know that to stand firm in the faith costs you much in this life. I know the condition of your soul, and I want to remind you that through faith, you remain wealthy in the things of the Spirit. For us, doesn't he not know the heartache that we face when our fellow fellow Christians even betray us or harm us? He knows the pain of losing somebody that we love. He knows the loss of the comfort that we might have in this life as we endure for the sake of faith. Jesus knows. He knows. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians. I want to look at two passages in 2 Corinthians. First, chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be made manifest in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And looking at chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians, looking at verses 8 and 9. By glory and dishonor, by evil report and of good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. This is, this is the church he's addressing, that they have nothing, that they are poor in, in the temporal sense. They're poor. And he says, but you are rich. 
You're possessing all things. I wonder if we would get excited about telling people about Jesus in the world if we came from this position of abundance. That we understand what we have abundantly in Christ. Would that not make us more excited to share the good news? I think sometimes we're pretty quick to share the the hardships that we face and the troubles. Yeah, that's all true, but you are rich. You are rich in Christ Jesus. You, you have, I heard a guy, uh, John Marr years ago describe the gospel as this, this beautiful gem that we hold up and we're holding on to this gem. We have this perfect gem and yet we don't declare to people the, the glory and the greatness of this gem that we possess. We possess everything. If we possess Christ, we possess everything. Now, I'm not saying that in possessing Christ, you won't have trouble in this world because Jesus guaranteed it to us. Did he not? In John 16, he said, in this world, there will be trouble. But be of good cheer. I went first. Be of good cheer. I went first. I overcame sin and death. And you have this treasure. You have this treasure in this earthen vessel. You have this treasure that is greater than any temporal gift, any temporal thing that you might have. You have this gift. To the church, Jesus says, uh, not only do I know your economic hardship, but I know that you are eternally wealthy, that your spiritual condition is good. And I know who belongs to me. And I know who are just pretenders and, and religious. Looking at 9b, the blasphemy, that is, those were blaspheming about the church. These Jews were blaspheming about them, saying that they were blasphemers because they worshipped this crucified Christ who was a criminal, who was cursed, right? And so they're saying negative things about them. And then Jesus turns that on his ear. They say they are Jews. That is, they say they belong to me, but they're not. Those belong to the synagogue of Satan. You are the church. You are the true people of God. This is confidence, brothers and sisters. You are the true church of God. If you believe by faith, you belong to him and he belongs to you and you have this great, great treasure. No matter what the religious community says about you, no matter what hardship you are currently under, you have the gem of Jesus Christ. The Jewish brothers who accuse you of being blasphemous because you worship me, it's they. It is they who are blasphemous because they do not worship in spirit and in truth. It is they who are blasphemous. Let's look at Romans chapter 2. Looking at verses 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he's a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but it is from God. He says, outwardly you might be poor and broken, but inwardly you are rich. In the spirit you are rich in Christ Jesus. The church at Smyrna, Jesus writes that you who are poor outwardly, you've been transformed inwardly. And your heart has been circumcised And to such belong the kingdom of heaven. I want us to think about this. To whom does the kingdom belong? The kingdom belongs to those who have a realistic view 
of themselves and of the world. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. See, the kingdom belongs to those who know their spiritual condition without Christ. Those who receive the comfort of the Holy Spirit are those who mourn uh, not so much the temporal loss of wealth, but they mourn the residual sin in their lives that rears its ugly head from time to time. I would ask us to think about this. Do you mourn your financial and personal losses more than you mourn your sin? More than you mourn the things that rise up in you? The ugliness that comes up in our lives from the inside. Do you mourn those things? I know I was thinking that as I would grow up in the Lord, that all of a sudden, in fact, when when I first began in this journey of walking with Christ, I thought that all of a sudden this meant because I believed in him that tomorrow I would never, ever sin again. Ever. I thought that was the way it worked. You put faith in Christ and all of a sudden, now you never sin. Well, as I reach my, I'm going to say mid-50s, I recognize my condition worse and worse. I understand that without Christ, I am helpless and hopeless. I understand that every day the flesh rises up, that sin comes up. And I'm saddened that it comes up again and again and again. I'm saddened by it. It breaks my heart. It breaks me down to know that I could be and would be displeasing to the Father. But then at the same time, I keep getting reminded that you have this treasure in Christ. You have the Spirit of God in you. And you know what that is? That is the comfort of the Holy Spirit as I mourn my condition. That is the comfort of the Holy Spirit who reminds us of who we are in Christ Jesus. But nevertheless, nevertheless, I think we must, as Christians, have a realistic view of who we are. That we must be those who are poor in spirit. Those who understand our spiritual condition without Him. Those who mourn sin. Those who mourn uh, the inward uh, issues that we have more than the temporal outward uh, problems that we face. Jesus is a comfort to those who know their condition. He knows our trials and he knows our pain in this life. And then he's going to tell us here as he tells this church, do not fear. See, he knows. He knows your situation. Do not fear. Verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, so you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Do not fear. This is a command of Jesus Christ to the church at Smyrna. Do not fear. I know the hardship that you're in, and I know the trouble that awaits you. I know the plans of the enemy. I know how many of you will be imprisoned, and I know for how long. When you look at this passage, Jesus knows a lot that he's telling this church. He tells them, I know that some of you 
will be put into prison. So he knows the number. He knows the amount of people that are going to suffer out of this group. And he knows for how long. You will have, you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Jesus knows. I know how many of you will be imprisoned, and I know for how long. Think about this, brothers and sisters. Some of us will probably face more suffering than others. And I want to say this, that if you are content with just being a pew sitter, it may not cost you the kind of trouble Jesus is speaking about to the church at Smyrna. If you want to be one who just sits around, who just is part of the furniture, who claims the name of Christ and does nothing with it, it may not cost you what it'll cost some of these brothers and sisters he's talking about, and it may not cost you what it'll cost uh, some uh, of your other brothers and sisters here. See, to the faithful disciple-making, soul-winning Christian, trouble is likely on the rise. See, they've been faithful. He knows the trouble they've been in. He knows their faith. He knows who they are. He knows who they are in the Spirit. And he says, because of who you are, because of your faithfulness, trouble is going to be on the increase for you. That's what he tells this particular church, some of you. Don't let fear deter us from being bold, brothers and sisters. Don't let fear deter us from being a faithful disciple. Because we know that to be a faithful disciple, it comes at a cost. It comes at a cost. What is the, what is the initial cost of being a disciple of Jesus Christ? It is temporal comfort. It is hatred from the world. It may mean economic hardship. It will definitely be a loss of reputation from the worldly. It may be the loss of friends and familial connections. Let's see what Luke uh, has to say in chapter 21 of his gospel. In Luke chapter 21, let's, uh, let's read uh, 16 through 19. But you will be betrayed, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated all be, by all because of my name. Yet not a hair on your head will perish, but your endurance will gain your lives. If you treasure these things more than you treasure Christ, I would ask you this, do you have him? Do you really have him? If you treasure comfort, if you treasure worldly riches, if you treasure a good reputation above the treasure that is Christ Jesus, do you have him? I ask you this, do you know the depths of your cosmic treason against God? I ask you if you understand the love of Jesus Christ. I ask if you understand the love of Jesus Christ who suffered death, that you would be free from the wages that your sin deserves. I wonder if you have a faith that is saving or do you have a faith that is faulty at best and false at the worst? To have saving faith is to treasure eternity over the temporal. To have saving faith is to trust in the blood of the Lamb and the testimony of Jesus Christ above itself 
in the temporal sense. Fear not, he says. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful even unto death. Turn with me to Matthew 10, looking at verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Physical death is a possibility for those who stand in Jesus Christ. But the first death is not the worst thing that can ever happen to a person. Death in this temporal sense, the loss of our bodies, the loss of our lives in this world is not the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. We'll see in just a moment. It's not the worst thing. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. By faith in Christ Jesus, the believer is granted eternal life. By perseverance in Christ Jesus, the, the believer will not taste the second death, the spiritual death. Charles Spurgeon tells a story about a vision he had of, of, of dying and going to hell. Utter darkness. But the only thing he could see were flames, and the flames spelled out in letters, eternally damned. This was his vision for all of eternity. This is all he would see, eternally damned, and darkness all around it, enveloped by darkness. Listen to what Jesus says awaits the faithful, the, the unfaithful and the unbelieving, the ones who treasure the temporal comforts of this world, rather than the spiritual blessings that are found by faith in Christ Jesus. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. I promise you I'm going to stop flipping through the Bible here in just a moment. I know you've been all over the place, and I thank you guys for following along. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Look at 21, verses 7 and 8. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be a God, his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and the unbelieving and abominable murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. This is a much worse thing than any temporal death we could experience. He knows. He knows our current temporal struggles. He knows our spiritual condition and our position. He knows the cost of unbelief. He knows the troubles that we will likely soon face if we continue to stand by faith in Him. He knows the schemes of the enemy. So I told you all from the Scriptures what Jesus knows. But I want to ask you what you know. Do you know that spiritual death belongs to the unbelieving? 
Do you know that Jesus Christ, who knows the effects of sin, but did not know sin experientially as you and I do, that he died, that you might be set free from sin by his shed blood? Do you know that he is alive? Do you know that death could not hold the sinless one and that God raised him uh, from the dead, declaring him Savior and Lord and Master, and that he is soon coming, bringing with him a reward for the faithful and eternal punishment for the unbelieving? Do you know? Will you today turn from sin and believe on him for eternal life?